What an honor it is to be a Christian. What a privilege and yet a wonderful blessing to be able to lift our voices as we have just done in these songs that we've sung together to praise the name and the glorious name at that of our holy and lovely Heavenly Father. It is in light of that perhaps one additional announcement we might make. Maybe we should perhaps keep in mind our third Sunday singing in the month of August. We'll host here the Putnam County third Sunday singing. That'll be the eighth, uh, the third Sunday in August. I believe will be the 21st of August this year. So let's kind of keep that on our calendar. I guess that'll be three weeks from today at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it'll be a time when we will have a number of visitors with us and we each can, of course, sing together the great praises and the wonderful refrains, adoring and honoring our God in heaven. For a couple of weeks now, we have given some thought to the matter of the home, the matter of the family. And along that particular study, we have so far focused the attention primarily upon the Father. It is today that we will somewhat continue that set of lessons by giving some thought to a godly mother. And perhaps as we remember some of the things that we have learned so far, reflecting upon not only the importance of the family, but also the role that we find in the Bible for the members in that family. For the duration of the lesson this morning, might we at least focus it more upon the, the woman, the female, the wife, the mother in that family. Some introductory thoughts might be in order as we give some thought to the kind of peril that in some ways is descriptive of the modern American family. Statistics likely not, need not even be mentioned because I think we all sense a movement in terms of the family, away from the biblical description. In so many ways, humanity tries to cast off God's way of doing things and to replace it with His own. And of course, in that way, it never leads anywhere good. And that certainly is true of the family. Here are some brief statistics, but in the year 2010, just last year, you'll notice that some 66% of children younger than age 18 in our country lived with two parents. I would suggest that though for some that might sound like a good statistic, it's a shame that it isn't almost 100%. But notice how changed it has been. If we go back only to the year 1980, some 30 years earlier, there at least it was 77%. Look at how what a precipitous decline, a great change in the, in the negative has been the change in the number of children younger than 18 who enjoy two parents at home. But not only that, you'll notice from the year 1980 to 1994, just a span of just a little over a decade really, we noticed the birth rate for unmarried women aged 15 to 44 increased from some 29.4 to 46.2 out of every thousand births. Again, statistics like that cannot bode terribly well for the overall stature, structure, fashion, and statement of the American family. It goes without saying, we seem to be moving further and further from God's way of description of the family, and we seem to in fact be trying to find ways to endorse and support it. As our government seeks to do so, as various and sundry social organizations seek to do so, our interest in this particular studies will of course continue to be, what does God say about these matters? He always knows what's best. Wasn't it said of Jesus in Mark 7, 37, He doeth all things well? That not only is descriptive of, of course, what were His physical acts upon earth, but yea, as the second member of the Godhead, all from the very stretches of eternity, He does all things well. 
It might be noted as we close that slide, we did look at the Father previously and cast the spotlight upon Him. Today, might we turn that role to the mother? Does God say a great deal about her? He does. And as we give some thought to it, it might be fair to say, perhaps a whole series of lessons could be just devoted to the father, just devoted to the mother. In our attempt to highlight some of these things, we'll, of course, shall be brief. But along the way, we also shall strive to let God do the speaking for us. With that said, might we come to just a recognition and reflection about the woman. We each know that a mother is supposed to be a woman. Though it seems strange to have to say that, we live in a society where that's not as obvious to everyone as it ought to be. But God intended for a mother to be a woman. And might we give some thought to just a few of these things. In Genesis 2 verse 18, at that point, having fashioned Adam... God saw that something was not good. Among all the things that were descriptive of that creation, the fact that the man was alone was not good. It was God on that occasion who did not seek the advice of Adam. He did not poll the characteristics of the angels in heaven. It was God who made the initiative and determination to remedy that shortcoming. And in so doing, He, of course, brought a deep sleep upon Adam and from His, from his side took that part that he made into a woman. We might never forget, of course, the fact that that was thus the finality of God's creation. He fashioned a woman. As he did so, you'll almost quickly notice that there was a powerful connection between the man and the woman. It was Adam who recognized it first, it would seem, and made this statement in Genesis 2.23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In fact, the word woman means out of man. And so we find that here in the fashioning and the creation, the making of this woman, that she, of course, taken from man, Adam apprised her and appreciated the stature and role that she was to have. We too find some similar things about her that we could state about the man. In the same way that he sinned and he chose to transgress God's commandments, so too did she. She partook of that forbidden fruit, that tree in the midst of the garden. And in so doing, of course, she sinned. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 6. Inasmuch as she sinned, however, just like Adam, she too could be forgiven. It's not that there's a plan of salvation only for the man, but she too, as an immortal spirit made in the image and likeness of God, had a way by which she could approach the precious blood of the Savior and be forgiven of her sins just like any man could be. It is to be noted then how special the man and the woman were. Very unique indeed. Certainly no animals like he made in the other days of creation and even earlier that same sixth day. We also notice... Many times Jesus highlighted the opportunity that women had as they assisted and as they went about the works of which they were capable of doing. We read so often, especially in Luke and John, about women who ministered or assisted Jesus and the other apostles in the way that they went about that work of the first century era. It is to be noted in light of all of that, that that role then that a woman is able to occupy is such that she too has talents and capabilities, always to be employed in the sphere of God's direction. But she too is commanded to employ them and use them in the way that benefits, of course, herself and family, 
and in the larger way, those whom she's able to touch, the woman in the family. As we give some thoughts and highlights to what follows, let's approach it similarly to the way we did last Sunday with the man listing some characteristics that should in fact describe or qualities that should be a part of the life of a godly mother. As we look at each of these, perhaps we can begin with this one. Drawn especially from Titus, the second chapter, verse 4, we learn something about the nature that Paul, as he addressed Titus, he gave him these instructions, namely, that among the things that the aged women were to, in fact, instruct and encourage and to insist upon those that were younger, one of them was to love their husbands. And we appreciate that just as it was such a special matter in the life of that husband to love his wife, that will be one of the foundational elements of the family. So too, there should be a reciprocation of that in as much as she is to love her husband. As you give some thought to what we find, the word that's there translated love comes from the Greek word phileo. And that word has within it a kind of affectionate love. It involves and includes a matter that goes along with that thought. Isn't it amazing? And isn't it remar rather remarkable that we notice that she, of course, was fashioned initially as a helpmeet for Adam. And we might still say that one of the greatest sources that it would seem from God's description in His book for a woman is when she finds her place beside a loving husband standing as an encouragement and a source of great pride of His and is able to, in fact, encourage and do the things that go along with her station and her capability in life. In the same way that He loves her as Christ loved the church, she loves Him, striving, in fact, to support and encourage along that way in time. She seeks His highest welfare, just as, of course, He seeks her highest welfare. They pull together as a team not against each other, not in opposite directions, not striving for different goals and objectives. They work together to build a foundation for a family that can withstand the onslaughts of a society, so often turned against the things that God would have them be and do. In that sense, we find some of these descriptions. For instance, in Proverbs 31, verse 11, "...her husband safely doth trust in her." He knows that she is always by his side. He never has to fear that she will wander or leave. She never, he never has to be concerned about that her attention is directed elsewhere for her highest recognition and the thing that she, of course, desires is for the well-being of her family. That includes her husband. And as such, again, Paul gave admonition that those women be taught and instructed to love their husbands. In that ancient day, just as it is today, that kind of instruction isn't always as obvious as it should be. In ancient Corinth, where some women were living in such a way that their highest attention wasn't directed to their own families, but often was directed elsewhere, they needed that kind of instruction then, and sometimes we still need to appreciate the need for that today. With regard to loving of the husband, though, the Bible doesn't stop there. For it also makes mention of other aspects of her relationship to her husband. In fact, as we notice especially in Ephesians 5.22, Paul by inspiration on that occasion wrote, Wives, 
Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Especially since the days, I suppose, of the early 1970s, it may be that some are not as interested in or not as supportive of a statement like that one. But nonetheless, in our goal to simply highlight what God has had to say, may we at least look for just a moment at this matter of submissiveness, trying to at least give it a bit more thought and a bit more attention. First of all, in that text of Ephesians 5.22, we find that that isn't the only place that that instruction is found. In Colossians 3 verse 18 is another passage by the same author now, Paul. And on that occasion he wrote, "...wives be in subjection unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord." And we find two particular ways that those thoughts are presented. First of all, as it is fit in the Lord. And secondly, inasmuch as it is mentioned, "...wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord." There's a difference of that word fit as if it's appropriate or that's the thing that's descriptive of the way that relationship ought to be. As we give some thought again to this matter of submissiveness, there are many places that that same word is used in the Scriptures. In Luke 2 verses 51 and 2, for instance, when it says that Jesus was submissive to His parents, Joseph and Mary... He was at the age of 12 then, but at that point in the years thereafter, it says He was subject unto them. We find in Romans 13, 1, that we're all admonished to be subject unto the higher powers. In Titus 3, verse 1, we're commanded again to be subject to principalities, powers, to magistrates and those in authority. With the thought of that same word appearing here, what then does the inspired writer mean for a wife to be in subjection to or to be submissive to her husband? From the descriptions that we find, it certainly seems that it was not to be likened unto slave versus master, for that's described with different words elsewhere. And it seems again not to be of a tyrannical dictatorial kind of thing. Rather, might we notice that if He loves her as Christ loved the church, she should in fact find it an honorable thing to respond with kind affection and love to this one who has her highest welfare at His interest, just as she has His highest welfare at hers. Even though we give thought to this matter of submissiveness, and that's the God-ordained way of doing things, might we appreciate today some, as in the ancient day, had a desire to cast off any element of submission. Paul nonetheless said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 that just as God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, the man is the head of the woman. It is that hierarchy that must be honored and respected not only as it places itself in the church but also of course in the family and to do so in such a way that as these two work together, she's submissive to Him, they of course are desirous of striving to be that family God would have them be. She honors His leadership in the family, not trying to trample over His thoughts and judgments, but always honoring of that, discussing things with Him as they work in communication together, striving, of course, to always lift high the banner of what God has commanded. That submission, of course, leads us to perhaps that thought that Peter had in mind in 1 Peter 3, verses 6 and 7. Where there, in highlighting this very point, he said that Sarah obeyed Abraham. And the inspired writer used that as an example for us in this day. And yea, as in all those days, 
even since that time of Abraham and Sarah. Whether it be then the matter of submission, whether it be with thought to loving that husband, what other duties come before us in Scripture concerning the mother and the woman in that family? Might we say, something interesting in Titus 2 verse 5 is very carefully stated. I would invite you to notice the way in which that's presented. As Paul gave an inspired listing of various things which the younger women were to be taught and of which they were to be instructed, it is there said that she was to be a keeper at home. There are several matters about that that are worthy of our attention, it seems. First of all, what does the Greek rendering perhaps suggest? That word means to be busy at home, to working at home, to caring for the house, to being preoccupied or having a careful concern for affairs that are domestic in nature. A few things perhaps should be noted. This doesn't mean that this is to be exclusively her labor. Paul doesn't say that, and it would in fact be error for us to presuppose a word of exclusiveness. May she work in any way outside the home? That virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 did so. Might we say then, with regard though to the home, it does seem that God has especially made her with a set of capabilities and talents which few, if any, men have. An ability to organize in the home. An ability to set things in a rightful order. To bring about the internal and interior characteristics of a home in such a special, ornate, beautiful, and organized way. It seems in many ways God has given to a woman that kind of talent and that kind of capability. Again, might we say, this does not say that the other members of the family should not assist in this way. Certainly, as each has the part of messing up a house, each ought to have a part, it seems, to assist her as she organizes and strives to keep it in its rightful order. She, however, in that particular domain, finds a special place where her talents seem to be keenly able to bring about a beauty which otherwise is not easily seen. The character of that organization and the character of the way that that's presented in Scripture, keepers at home. I would ask each of us to give some thought. The specialness of the home is so often touched in a fabric by the woman in a way that's very different from the man. Quite often that man perhaps is at work. Not to say again that she doesn't, but there's a degree of glue perhaps to her in terms of keeping a maintenance of unity in that family that might be more challenging to see in the father and in the husband sometimes. All the while, it is in that family as she strives to keep it, to safeguard it, to organize and structure it. She is, in fact, carrying out a beautiful and eternal duty. Those children, as they're instructed and trained, Perhaps you can notice that that virtuous woman made the provision of the home in a number of ways. Might we read, in fact, beginning in verse 13 of Proverbs 31, and listen to what this virtuous woman did. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. You'll notice she looked with great care, not only to herself, but the other members of that family, the other members of the household, even the servants, of which were spoken in verse 15. 
You'll notice in verse 16, she considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand, she planteth a vineyard. She took the initiative, perhaps again along with the careful communication and advice of a husband, and she proceeded to do some things that greatly benefited those whom she cherished and those whom she loved. You know, in verse number 21 of that same chapter, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She had taken preparation such that they were ready for whatever the climate and the particular means of weather had brought. But we begin to see that this godly woman is described in some very beautiful and very touching ways and ways that are so beneficial and practical to the day-to-day operation of that family. Not only that, in the fourth place, she is said again in Titus to love her children. As surely as we expected that to arrive at the proper time in the lesson, might we revisit that text in Titus 2 verse 4. Just as surely as that text reminded us earlier that she has love for her husband, she also loves her children. Perhaps it seems to us today unthinkable to see as we sometimes do on the news about how a woman can kill her children or allow them to be treated in such abusive ways and yet we know that can happen. But Paul admonished Titus of that ancient day to instruct the women to love their children. So too today we still find that an encouraging text to read, do we not? To love her children. In what way might that love be manifested? We've already seen she provides for them by the ways available to her, be it their clothing, be it their food, be it the other means, of course, for the maintenance of that keeping of that house. But isn't it also interesting that the Proverbs writer Solomon also told us some other ways that she could have a very vital role in what those children will one day be. In Proverbs 1 verse 8, the writer on that occasion admonished those of that day and certainly all of us, to never forget the law of thy mother. The instruction of a mother. That law, that set of responsibilities, those duties, those laws, rules, and ordinances which she strived to instill within us to make us better people. Maybe we each can remember things that we recall mother saying and we've never forgotten them. We may not have understood the wisdom then. I suspect after we had grown up a bit, we perhaps saw that there was a great deal of wisdom in what she said. But might we never forget that as she nurtures, instructs, and has these laws in place, Proverbs 6 verse 20 highlights the same thought. Train up a child, another passage we'll read, in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. She too has a role to play as a child is reared under her nurture and admonition. We understand as fathers are expressly told to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As she is the keeper of the home, she no doubt has a part to play in that. May our children then see in mothers the godliness and righteousness and piety that should be withheld and seen so beautifully from the reality of the Word of God. In fact, there might be more that could be said as it relates to that aspect, this fourth one. From passages such as these, Proverbs 31, verse 26, that same chapter that describes that virtuous woman, might I invite you to notice that there it says, She openeth her mouth with wisdom, 
and in her tongue is the law of kindness. And so it is that we find that as she opens her mouth, that which comes forth has within it the matter of wisdom. A woman, of course, does have a great deal of wisdom through the years of her growth and her maturation, through the years of her experience and her knowledge. And as we noted earlier, she is able to instill that, to instruct that, to remind that of those who are her children. Furthermore, it makes note in that same verse of the law of kindness that emanates from her tongue. Quite often that woman has a heart that expresses such compassion, such concern and kindness. And as we perhaps think about that, sometimes it's noted that men can be a bit more cruel, a bit more stout-hearted, a bit less compassionate and kind, and so often those words of the woman can perhaps lead a man to see things in a different light and can certainly help those children to appreciate the same. It might be fair to say in light of all of that, that in Proverbs 29, 15, there are times, of course, where sternness is appropriate. Children, of course, don't always do that which is the right thing. And they are in need of correction. And they are in need of being placed on the right track so that they understand the error of that which they did or said. It would seem from Proverbs 29:15 that so too a woman can have some degree of appreciation in bringing about that correction. But doesn't it say in light of all of it, a reading that reads as follows. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. How many tears have been shed by a mother whose child took the wrong path, went the wrong way, acted in ways that were in fact criminal, acted in ways that were at the very least disgraceful and unkind, that were really no great benefit to society, it is true then that the rod, if withheld, can very well lead to that kind of sadness in her later years. A godly mother is, of course, a great blessing. As you come to near the last thing, not only that, she exhibits great pride in the accomplishments of her children, those noble accomplishments in which they use their talents in such a fine way to benefit others. Passages in the Proverbs tell us what great joy that brings to a mother just as it does, of course, to a father, as we saw last Lord's Day morning. Parents take a great deal of excitement when those children make those decisions about doing that which is right and honorable and noble and just. Perhaps it is in all those ways that a few other qualities might be mentioned in regard to a godly mother and to a godly woman. Some of these qualities are highlighted in brevity, but might we begin as follows first. There is a strength in her character. Verses such as these highlight that thought. Verse 17 of Proverbs 31. On that particular occasion, the inspired writer, again describing that virtuous woman, described her like this. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. Now might we say he was an encourager to be a bodybuilder. But he was asserting that by virtue of her character, she has an element of pious strength which is unmistakable. She stands upon the four-square character of what is right, clothing herself with the quality of strength. We each understand that a woman, of course, in the keeping of that home, in the things that often come her way, she must be a person that has an element of strength. 
She can't be overwhelmed and overrun by those children. If so, she soon will lose control of them. She must be strong in the character of that which is here described of her. Often in working outside the home, there's an added element of strength that must describe her. Not only keep her at home, but now attempting to do this job where she deals with the workplace. A great deal of strength will be required of her to maintain both of them and to do them as well as she would like. Besides that element of strength, we also notice in verse 25 of this same chapter, it says, "...strength and honor are her clothing." and she shall rejoice in time to come. There is now made mention not only of the strength, but also of the honor. It is a fine thing when a child, of course, grows up under the tutelage of an honorable mother and woman, one who always conducted herself in an appropriate way, not with foolishness, not in a way that tried to draw the attention of society, not in a way that served to, in fact, direct her attention other than to where God would have it be, but rather this place that is noted for its strength as well as its honor. We again can well think about the ancient times of Corinth and even other ancient cities in which honor was not always seen in a woman. They often lived in a way that bordered on prostitution, if not openly related to it, and what would it have been like to see women living in a way like that? Of course, Paul never admonished such, but always condemned it in his New Testament writings. And may we stay today that even far from living in a way as that, even those ways of dishonorable character should be left far from that person who would desire to be the godly mother God would have her to be. That honor is also seen in a way like this. We noted it earlier, but perhaps an additional reflection of the industriousness with which this godly mother is described. Revisit verse 27 with me of the same chapter, Proverbs 31. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. She looketh well to the ways of that family. She ha always has an unflinching eye upon what's taking place, ascertaining the propriety of it, striving to ever guide and provide. And so it is. As verse 27 says, she eats not the bread of idleness. It's a full-time job to keep a house the way that a mother would want it to be. And as she labors toward that end and that goal, she eats not the bread of idleness. So often the labor running late into the night perhaps even early in the morning, striving to bring about that which would be necessary and needful for the ongoing productivity of the family. May we again appreciate that inasmuch as she eats not the bread of idleness, her busyness, her industriousness may call the others of the family to assist her. And haven't we each seen that as it comes to providing the food, preparing the meals, assisting with the laundry, helping with the other things as necessary? You see, the bread of idleness doesn't work well for the ongoing maintenance of that family. In verse 20 of this same chapter, we notice some more things about this godly mother. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. We see an element of consideration and concern and care, even maybe for those not in her household here. Her heart of compassion has a boundless character that even extends to assist others when she is able to do so. Isn't it amazing to hear so many things said about the godly mother of Proverbs 31? 
Maybe all of that leads us to one final thought drawn from one of the last verses of this chapter. Verse number 30 reads as follows. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. It is to be noted that sometimes a person, perhaps a woman certainly in this case, but could put on airs and hypocrisy and pretend to be what she really is not. We notice again that favor is deceitful. One must then appreciate that such would be detrimental indeed to the husband and that family. And what's more, beauty is vain. And we know that, of course, beauty sometimes is not vain. But above all those things, it says is this, a woman that feareth the Lord. One who places her greatest comfort and concern in the words of this book and who wishes nothing more, nothing greater or higher than to have her husband and children with a knowledge of it, striving to appreciate it and live by it, and to know in their heart the same reward and promise that she looks forward to, being judged, of course, faithful in the eyes of God. Those kinds of things challenge us to ever appreciate that across the landscape of the human family, we can be thankful for godly mothers, and we can appreciate the greatness of what they're able to bring about for ourselves and, of course, for our families. The honor that accords to a godly mother and the strength that all goes along with it brings us to a closing thought in this lesson. As you think about some of the women in the New Testament, Paul made mention of several of them in Romans 16, women who aided to push forward the boundaries of God's kingdom, those who not only took the liberty to care for their families, as described we have this morning, but also the other talents that God gave them, but always using them in the sphere and in the limitations that God had so commanded. The blessing that accords to a godly mother I've summarized as follows. She is certainly a great blessing to herself, to her husband, to her family, and yea, to others who perhaps work with her or know her. And we have particularly looked at some of these qualities as it's described in the Bible, that as she loves her husband and as she loves her children as she in fact provides instruction and nurture, even discipline at the appropriate times. She's the keeper of the home, as described in Titus 2, and a whole host of other qualities, including industriousness, concern, honor, strength, and godliness. We can begin to see, I think, in a lesson such as this one, how that again, our modern culture seems to have moved so far from asking of a woman what God does, when we think about a home with a mother described not in these ways, but one described so differently, what will be the consequences for those children and for that husband and for that home? Can it ever be as God would have it to be? Can it ever have the, in the internal nature, the interior character, and will it lead to those children being as they should be? The answer, of course, is obvious. God's way is always the best. Isn't it interesting then as we close our lesson to ask ourselves the question of examination? Just as the fathers, we encouraged to ask it last Sunday, what about the mothers today? A godly mother? Are there things in your life that perhaps you know should be changed? If they are of a private nature, seek your Heavenly Father in prayer for prayers of strength and encouragement to make those changes. If there could be things in public that we could assist in praying for you in public, we'd be honored to do that. As we're thankful for godly mothers today, 
There's, of course, a day set aside each year, Mother's Day, that second Sunday in May, in which we particularly reflect upon and honor them. But today, as we choose, this 31st day of July, to give thankful for God's direction for a godly mother, if there would be one or more in the audience that would have a need to respond publicly, why not today? If you've one who's never been a Christian, never put on the name of Christ, let today be the day. Brother Adam has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could assist you in making the mark of your belief and repentance, taking that confession and assisting in baptism, we'd be honored to do it. If you need to rededicate your life to the Lord, why not do that as well by way of prayer? And if we could be of assistance in either of these ways, if you would, why not let us know that while together we stand and while we sing.